Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Good morning, Missio Day, and welcome to week four in our Lent series that we're calling Longing for Rebirth. We look forward to Resurrection Sunday. I love talking about Resurrection Sunday. The empty grave, death defeated, God's victory over sin through Jesus. I can talk about resurrection life all day long. But in this series, we're acknowledging that we need to pause to get to that place of new life, of rebirth, of resurrection glory. The celebration is sweeter when we've done this work through Lent in taking our time to get to the resurrection by um, leading up to acknowledging and confessing our need for a savior who could conquer even the grave. So we've been following in this series the symbolic path of baptism. We acknowledge our need for a savior. We talk about confessing and returning to God. And now we enter into the symbolic submerging into the water or submerging into symbolic death before raising back up into resurrection glory, into new life. So this week and next, we will be in the portion of this series that's the symbolic submerging into death. And today we are going to ask a really important question. Why did God's son have to die? Now, I have to admit to you, I don't always like to have to face big, intimidating questions in our faith. I call them intimidating because there are really, really smart people who study big questions like this, and they come to different conclusions, and that makes it hard to know there's going to be a set answer to some big, big questions. It's bound to happen. The fact of the matter is, when we talk about faith, there is mystery here. Some things will not be fully known by us yet. I'm in seminary now, and one of my professors, uh, Jeff Holsklaw, would talk about um, mystery this way. He would say, he finds that people do one of two things. Either they see mystery out on the horizon and they say, no way, I'm not getting close to it. It's just a mystery. We don't get to know. He said, we can't do that. We can't avoid the hard questions. But on the other hand, we can't try to actually know everything. There's going to be a place where we come up against some things that are mysterious. And how is that? Why is that? We're talking about a divine God interacting with infinite, with finite humans. So cosmic, eternal, divine, and us. We're going to run into some things that are mysterious. But all that to say, we don't have to be scared to ask the big questions, to wonder, to ask things of God, or to ponder deeper truths about our faith. I also think sometimes we don't like to ask big questions because we might not like the answer. Or worse yet, it might make us doubt. I think that church can treat doubt like a dirty word, and it is not. Things that we are going to wrestle through in our faith, that's okay. God's not shaken by our questions or by shaking our fists when we hit a mystery and we can't know the answer. It's okay. I think about time when our kids were little, toddlers. If you've ever spent time with a toddler, you know their favorite word is why. The the tree is... uh, Leaves are changing color. Why? Well, because it's fall. Why? Everything is why. Why? They do, we do our best as parents to answer, but we don't know all of the, the answers, or sometimes we just get fatigued. God never does. God doesn't get fatigued with our questions at all. But it's also true that God doesn't feel the need to let us know every single thing. 
So questions and faith, wrestling and belief, these things can go together. They can coexist. So we know when we look at this big question, why did Jesus have to die? We know that this wasn't a surprise to Jesus, that Jesus would have to die. So we see this in a lot of places, but we've been focusing on the Gospel of John through this series. So I'm going to read from, um, which version do I have today? I have the CSB version. I'm going to read from John 10, verses 1 through 11. Truly I tell you, Anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus said again, truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by my name, he will be saved and come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd sacrifices his own life for the sheep. So this isn't a surprise. But, but why? Why did God's son have to die? Let me give you a little personal history on why I feel like this question is important to answer. When I think about how I used to uh, approach big questions like this, questions that felt like they may have an uh, unpleasant answer. I think about this analogy. Okay, when I was uh, giving birth to Gigi, um, who is now 16 years old, uh, so this was a while ago, but I have an awful, awful fear of needles. It's irrational, I know, but it's I, needles are the worst. And I decided to have an epidural. And the anesthesiologist, who, by the way, was not a great bedside manner person, came in and said, okay, I have to tell you exactly all the details of what I'm about to do. And I said, Absolutely not. I don't want to know anything. If it works, I'm fine. Don't give me details. He proceeded to go ahead and tell me everything because he said he legally had to. I literally covered my ears and sang Mary had a little lamb at the top of my voice to not hear what he still was saying. I didn't want to know the details. If it works, that's all I need to know. And I kind of approach big questions like this with that same attitude. If it works, God, I, I don't need to ask because I think the question might just make me feel scared of you. Honestly, if I'm honest with you, it might make me feel scared, but I'm not afraid to ask it anymore. Why? Why did God's son have to die? In my mind, it didn't make sense together, right? Okay, God is love. God loves me. Jesus is God's son. God loves the son. I sin. God has wrath, so God made Jesus die because of me. It felt weird and wrong and not okay. Love and wrath death and saving? Why do we talk about and say about the blood of Jesus so much? What is going on? See, I had an image in my mind that I just didn't look at, but when I stopped to actually ponder it, I realized I had an image that looked more like a vengeful, angry father taking out his wrath on an innocent, faithful son. It's like some strange Star Wars father-son scene that's absolutely inaccurate when it comes to our loving God. 
So I needed to tackle some of these big questions, and we're going to do that this morning in a really short period of time. I have a lot of resources. If you want to learn any more, I really love having this question redeemed in my own life, and so I would encourage you, I would love to talk more about it, because having this question redeemed opened the floodgates of God's love and goodness that was demonstrated on that cross. So here we go. Big questions, short time. Did the Father send the Son to die? We can mistakenly sort of hear that as a plot line, like a separate angry father sends a disconnected separate son to his death and then thankfully raises him again by the power of the Spirit. Maybe that's the way that it went on, but that's not true. I'm going to do a super quick reminder of a huge truth. Our God, God is triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons, all of whom are God, together, never separated, yet three persons. It's really a mystery. And so that's as good as I can do. I have a friend in seminary who says, if I spend more than five minutes talking about the triune God, I'll probably fall into saying something wrong. It's really a beautiful mystery. But this is really important that these three persons, we we see this. Jesus, who is a person that we know in the Bible, talks about praying to the Father individually or teaching us about the Spirit. So we know these are three persons, but together they are one God, one God. Triune God has never not been together in relationship, creating and operating out of an overflow of perfect harmony and love. They never have operated, God has never operated out of a lack. It's all out of a self-giving love dance together as God. Now this matters because that means that whatever you see one person of the Trinity doing, you're seeing God doing that. That is God. You see the son do something, you're seeing God do something. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So at the cross, we see God delighting to give God's self willingly and voluntarily to make a way for reconciled relationship with humanity. That was a really big truth, quickly said. That's God's self. There's this pastor and scholar who is really wise. Her name is Fleming Rutledge, and I'm going to quote her a couple times today. I don't usually like to do a lot of quotes, um, but there are really smart people who can say this stuff so much better than me, so forgive me a couple of quotes. From Fleming Rutledge, on the cross, Jesus voluntarily and willingly bowed his head under the power of sin and the curse of God. It is vital to understand that the Father did not do this to the Son, The Son and Father are doing this together. God is submitting to God's own wrath. That's what's happening on the cross. Well, that actually brings up a good question. What is up with God's wrath and God's love? They don't seem to fit together. It's a good question. Let's go to 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we may have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God is love. This is the demonstration of God's love. At the same time, Psalm 711, God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. Okay, 
My old thought pattern went something like this. It made me kind of scared at the father to look at this question. A father who I know is loving, who has the power to create this amazing beauty of this world, but who was apparently kind of powerless to his own wrath, so he had no choice but to send his son to be killed. That was how my thought pattern looked when I actually looked at this question, but that's not true. See, God's wrath is not something that sits awkwardly next to his love. This is from a great book, Delighting in the Trinity. I highly recommend it. Nor is it something unrelated to God's love. God is angry at evil because he loves. Love cares, and that means it cannot be indifferent to evil. Love must be sincere. This is from Romans 12, 9. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So only such love can be sincere. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loving. God is wrathful because God is love. A holy, loving God cannot turn a blind eye to evil. Again, from Fleming Rutledge, the wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time, time to time, as though God has temper tantrums. It's a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and his coming to set matters right. It's not an emotion. It's God's righteous activity in setting right what was wrong. It is God's intervention on behalf of those who cannot help themselves. So wrath isn't some vengeful anger with us. It's a holy intolerance of evil. Sin separates. God restores through Jesus, the only one who could make a path to correct what had broken, the only one who could conquer the power of evil in and among us. Okay, so only God could have taken on sin and defeated it, but why do we talk so much about Jesus's death? Here's what I mean. When we honor uh, great people, and I recognize Jesus is both human and divine, so this is different, but think about how we talk about a great person. We don't celebrate their death, we celebrate their life. Why do Christians talk so much, sing about the blood of Jesus and celebrate the cross? It's important because knowing that this was divine God entering into our humanity, the nature of Jesus's death was especially extreme. Why? Consider what Jesus took on willingly. I think about like, why, why couldn't Jesus have lived a nice long life and had more time to teach us more and died a natural death or something like that? Think about the death of Jesus and what this means that God's self took on. Jesus took on the betrayal of his friend Judas after he had already at the Last Supper given him bread, washed his feet. He'd washed his feet and Judas betrayed him. Jesus took on the denial of one of his closest friends, Peter. Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. Have you been denied by a dear friend? Jesus took on mocking, horrible, uh, just taunting. He took on awful beating without lifting a hand in retaliation. His body was being mutilated just by anger. People who had power over against somebody who was powerless, just like the worst, the worst kind of physical beating and abuse. Jesus took on false accusations, people just blatantly lying about him and what he had done. Jesus took on the corruption of politics. He took on power abuse by the religious system. He took on 
corruption in the judicial system. He willingly took every bit of it. And then he walked to a cross, which was not even fit. If, if, a, if a Roman committed a crime, they would not be given such a lowly death as a crucifixion. Jesus died the death of a slave, completely innocent. But I want you also to consider this. Do you remember how I told you, we talked about how the triune God was forever always in perfect relationship in a self-giving love dance for all of time. And that God is perfectly holy. Jesus is uh, like us in every way, but without sin, scripture tells us. But in the moment that holy, sinless Jesus took all of this on, on our behalf, there was the one moment in all of eternity when the son could not be in the presence of holy God. The one moment where Jesus experienced relationship separation. That's why this death is such a big deal. It's cosmic. It's, it's divine. And it's a willing separation that God's self would come and allow such horror to be taken onto himself through Jesus. Jesus' broken holy self means that God experienced separation. He experienced the wrath of sin or the consequence, excuse me, of sin. God sacrificing God for us. The most amazing moment of divine love. That's why we talk about the blood of Jesus covering us. Blood in this case isn't about gore uh, like it is really in our culture. The, The blood of Jesus represents life spilt That's what we talk about, the blood. I'm covered in the blood of Jesus. Jesus's life covers mine. Jesus is the only way that that um, atoning sacrifice could make me one, you one, with the triune God again. God through the Son would take our brokenness to create that path back. That's why we talk about this work of Christ, this blood of Christ drawing us back into the very life of God through the Holy Spirit. That's what we get to participate in. That's why it matters. Why did Jesus have to die? Jesus is God's love on display in the most tangible, violent, beautiful, glorious way that we could ever imagine. No one would make this up. (laughs) It would be unheard of to think of the divine entering into brokenness like this. Uh, And that was all done out of divine love. And that's why looking at questions like, why did, why did Jesus have to die? Why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because that submerging into symbolic death is the only way forward into resurrection life. Now, I know I said a lot of kind of intense, big questions and things in a short period of time. Yes, we have limited time. But I wanna leave us today with three thoughts when it comes to asking big questions of God. First of all, like I said before, I want you to remember that God can take it. Big questions are important, but I would like to ask all of us to commit as community to three things when we look at the big questions we wanna ask of God, that we wanna be brave enough to ask of God. Number one, I wanna ask us to commit to community. If you are wrestling with questions in your faith, don't do it alone. 
You need others with you to hold hope, to remind you of truth. It doesn't mean we're going to have all the answers as a community. It doesn't at all. But we can hold mystery together. The threat is that if you go off and do this in isolation, you can get lost in questions and not be pulled out by people who might have access to resources with really big brains and big pastoral hearts that have gone before us in the the history of the church to help wrestle these big questions. We need each other, and not just each other at Missio Dei. We need smart people like like Fleming Rutledge and, and other big thinkers to help us navigate big questions in our faith. We do not do it alone. Commit to community. Number two, some of you have heard me say this before. Commit, just commitment. Commit overall. When you are doing this work of asking big questions, I gave you some examples of what I used to think, right? I did that on purpose. What what people call this is deconstructing. I needed to deconstruct that Star Wars model in my head, right? I needed to deconstruct that wrathful God, angry at the sun and all of that stuff. I needed to deconstruct that. And a lot of people do really important deconstructing work. No one ever taught me that. I picked it up somewhere along the way and I had to be willing to look at it in order to tear it down and replace it with what is true and right and beautiful and trustworthy and noble in scripture and what we know of God to be true. But... I know too many people who are willing to do the deconstructing work and not commit to reconstructing in its place the truth of God. When you are doing deconstructing work, do it in community with a commitment to reconstruct what was wrong into what is true. Make that commitment because deconstruction on its own will leave you lost and really lonely and without a better truth to replace what was wrong in your own mind and heart from before commit to the reconstruction. And then number three, I would leave you with this, include God. Now, I know my first two were commit and community, and David Wagner always manages to make his list start with the same letter, and so when he sees this, he's going to just have a better word for it that starts with the letter C. I couldn't think of anything else. Commitment, community, and include God. Look through the Psalms, The psalmists are willing to cry out big questions uh, to God. I'm paraphrasing, but like, where are you? Did you forget me? What is going on? What are you, why aren't you stopping these evil people? Huge questions, but they always stop with declaration of the truth of who God is. And I think that's really important. If you need to shake your fist at God or ask big questions of God, do it with God, not alone. Don't just go off on your own and and, and fume and rant because if you haven't invited God in, then you haven't made a way for God to restore and redeem those struggles that are going on in your heart. Regardless of what the questions are, say in faith, God, I know your word is true. I'm just really confused about this part. Jesus, I trust you, but I'm really having a hard time with this right now. I want to learn. That's why I'm asking God, but but here's my big question that I'm kind of scared to look at. I know, maybe I won't know fully. First uh, Corinthians 13, I think it's 12, says we, we won't know fully everything now, but someday we will. But God, in the meantime, I invite you to be with me in the questions, in the wondering, in finding that line in the mystery between that which I will admit that I cannot know, but I'm also not gonna try to avoid it because I have this relationship with you, God. This is just say it, like bring it. We have a relationship with God through Jesus. By the power of the spirit, we can ask, we can probe, we can shake our fists at God, and we can know that there is life 
and truth and wonderful love on the other side of any question that we could think to ask. So, Monsieur Day, as we transition back to a time of worship, I exhort you to ask these questions of God well in community with a commitment to replace truth with what has been wrong and with a willingness to engage God in the wondering. And I believe in faith. God will meet us there in the big questions with the big, huge love as displayed uh, by Jesus perfectly on the cross. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.